Vineyard Church audio podcast. Today on the podcast, we have part eight in our series, It's the End of the World as We Know It. And uh, we're looking at the last two chapters of Revelation, Revelation 21 and 22. And uh, as I will say in this message, if you have any questions, we're going to try to address questions next week as we just finish everything. So you can email those in and uh, we'll try to get to them. So this is some really good stuff. Let's look into it. North Shore Vineyard Church, downtown Covington. Thanks for listening. Well, we're, we're, we're trying a new thing that, that every month that has five weeks in it, we're taking one of those weekends off to uh, just stay home, or as we did last weekend, we went camping. Um, but by the looks of it in here, some people probably thought that we're taking off this weekend as well. Uh, <laughs> we had our first ever church camping trip last weekend. How many of y'all came out to that? Woohoo! Uh, that was fun. We had a blast out there. It was freezing cold at night. And some people had never been camping, and I realized that probably experiencing camping for the first time at 28 degrees, um, it's probably not the best way, but, but the, the good way to look at it is it only will get better from here on out. So um, you, you got that part out of the way. But we're, we're definitely going to, I think, do another church camp out uh, next year, and we're trying to work on a few ways to make it better since... Uh, we just kind of threw it together this time. So anyway, if you're new here, my name is Crispin. I'm the pastor here at North Shore Vineyard. And we have been in a series for the last uh, few weeks on the book of Revelation, the, the most controversial and misunderstood book in the Bible. And I'm, not, I'm still not sure that we understand much of it at all. Uh, but I've tried to at least present a, a way of approaching it, uh, which I believe uh, is, is very reflective of, of Jesus um, and doesn't present us with a schizophrenic picture of God. So um, today I'm going to do my best to wrap up the series. Um, but in doing this, um, you know, when we went through the Gospel of John, we spent basically over 50, 52 weeks, over two years, going through the Gospel of John. We took our time with it. Uh, we spent half a year going through the book of Philippians a, a while back. Um, I didn't want to be the church that spends two years going through the book of Revelation. <laughs> and and really one of the things with revelation uh revelation says the same things over and over in just different graphic crazy ways and so um i realized that there's a lot of revelation that i've not covered so what i want to say today is on the front of your program uh it says questions and comments about revelation um i'd like you to fill this out if you can if you've been here with us and been following the series um and it's just a few, few simple questions there. How have you experienced God during this series on Revelation? How have you been challenged? What questions do you still have concerning Revelation? And then any other comments that you have. And if you could just write those down before you leave, rip it off and put it in the offering box. Um, my plan is next week to kind of do an, a broad summary of everything and then address those questions. But here's the deal. I'm not a Bible scholar or a theologian myself, so I'm not going to try to answer your questions on the fly as if I have um, great knowledge. So if you could provide me with these questions in advance, I'll do my best to uh, draw on the best scholarship that I can come across to answer them. Cool? All right, so today we're going to come to... Uh, Revelation chapter 21 and 22. This is the last two chapters of the Bible. And 
I, I said something two weeks ago that a lot of your Christian life, the way that you act towards others, the way that, that uh, you, you interact with the world around you has to do with two main factors. The first is your view of God, the image of God that, that, that you have behind your worship. And secondly, it's your view of the end times. Uh, and I introduced you to a, a, a big word that I'm sure none of you have used in your workplace in the last two weeks, eschatology. <laughs> and eschatology is just basically how we think this whole thing's going to end up. Now, I've grown up uh, in evangelical churches, Baptist and charismatic churches, and uh, if you've grown up, if you've come out of a similar background, probably those of you who grew up Catholic don't have this baggage, but, um, but, but, but for me, I remember as a ninth grader going to youth group, and, and it, even if you didn't go to my youth group, if you grew up in a similar church, you've probably heard this exact illustration before. If you walked out of the doors of this church today and you get hit by a car, do you know where you would spend eternity? Have you ever heard that before? Yeah. <laughs> if you died tonight, where would you spend eternity? And as a ninth, as a ninth grader who didn't want to go to hell uh, and wanted to go to heaven, I would come up and pray the prayer every week, right? <laughs> and uh, Because I, I, I didn't want to go to hell. And, and, but here's the deal. I, I, I think that 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 understanding is, is rooted out of a, a good motive, but it communicates that all the action, everything that Jesus came to do was to get you somewhere else when you die. So, so the, the natural effect of this in my life was it had no effect on the way I lived because I was just praying a prayer so I could, could go to heaven, you know, like get out there. Uh, you know, so I'm just kind of basically covering the bases, you know. And, and, and some, some of you have grown up with a similar kind of faith. You know, I just want to make sure that I, I you know, prayed the prayer uh, because that's all that's going to matter when I stand before the pearly gates. Did you pray the prayer? Yeah, I prayed the prayer. Cool. You're in, you know. Uh, <laughs> but that's the kind of view, and really, that whittles down the majesty of the cross of Christ to just something that it never was intended to be. As New Testament scholar N.T. Wright says, heaven is important, but it's not the end of the world. <laughs> You're going, oh, what? <laughs> what we're going to find out today is that the end of the world is not heaven. It's actually the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven coming on earth. The end, the, the, the end of this book, we see the prayer that Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. Where? On earth as it is in heaven. We see that that prayer is finally answered. See, the, simil the way that we view Jesus and these kind of ways of praying a prayer so we can go somewhere else when we die, we also have similar views of, of the end of times. I grew up in evangelical thinking where, uh, and this is, this is probably the dominant view in, American, in the American church today, that God is just going to judge this whole world and it's all going to burn up. Have you ever grown up with that, that mentality? You ever heard that? You know, like this whole thing is just going to burn up. And got the whole point of all of this is that someday, uh, hopefully, we'll be raptured out of here. And that we'll end up as a bunch of disembodied spirits floating around playing harps on clouds. In a never-ending church service. <laughs> 
I remember as, as a young Christian going to church and, and during the time of worship, they would kind of guilt you into to expression, you know, <laughs> and they'd say, you know, if you don't like worship, you're going to hate heaven because it's just going to be nonstop worship. And you're like, wow, okay, hallelujah. <laughs> um, but really that idea that God wants to uh, take us out of this world, put us somewhere else for eternity, that idea has a lot more to do with Gnosticism than Orthodox Christianity. If you really read the, the Bible, now, now here's the deal. What I'm about to say is going to sound heretical because it, it doesn't sound like what you've heard a lot in modern Christianity. But here's the deal. The, the Christian faith is a belief that we will one day be resurrected just like Jesus, and we'll actually have actual physical bodies that are upgraded. You know? And we will be resurrected to live in a new creation. We're not going to be souls, disembodied souls on clouds somewhere playing harps. We're actually going to live in a renewed creation. You know, last week at Bogachetta, man, I did a little hike that day with a bunch of the kids in the church, and, and there was, we started off with like 20 people. And I think there's about five of us who crossed the finish line three, three hours later. But I love being out there and seeing the, the birds and the trees and the sunshine. I love that. And I think there's something in all of us that God has created us to enjoy this creation. And, but if you've grown up in certain kinds of Christianity, you've been like, ah, it's just going to burn. It's going to all be destroyed. Is it any wonder that many Christians in America happen to be the last people to get on board with helping protect creation? I really believe that is tied into our eschatology and our view of God. We think that this created world doesn't matter, that the action's out there, and so we don't value it. I think Christians ought to be the first on the forefront of, like, hey, it's probably good if we don't pollute the water. It's probably good if we take care of what God's given us because it's a good world. It's the world God created for us to live in. So today, we're going to look at Revelation 21 and 22. But before we do, I want to start out at the beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Because it's, it's really fascinating when you see that, that Genesis 1 and 2 and Revelation 21 and 22, the bookends of the Bible have a whole lot in common. We see God's intended purpose for things, and then we see that same purpose realized in the last two chapters of, of creation. So it has become quite common in recent years when it comes to the first two chapters of Genesis to argue over was this a literal six days or, or was this like periods of thousands of years or, or, or you know could, could evolution been behind it and, and we argue over Genesis we fight I mean the church fights with public schools over this stuff and, and I think in all of our fighting we miss the, the theological points of Genesis uh, we miss the, what they were actually trying to say because what they weren't I, I really don't believe that, that Genesis, the authors of Genesis were actually trying to answer any modern scientific questions. I think they were trying to say something about God that was in contrast to every other religion in the ancient Near East at that time. In Mesopotamia, there were all these religions, and you can read these, these creation stories from uh, the Sumerians and different groups around that area, and, and it reads like a soap opera. If, if you've ever read any Greek mythology, it's kind of like that, except a little weirder. 
And so under these ancient Near Eastern creation myths, they viewed that, that this created world was just kind of a haphazard creation. It was the result of, of infighting between these gods. And none of these gods were, were pictured as being good. They were just selfish, you know. They're out for their own. And they fight, and, and basically earth arises out of the body of a slain god or goddess. I can't remember what it is. But... But that's the, that, those were the, the, the prevailing narratives in the ancient Near East when the Jewish people were taking shape. And they come along with this story of creation. And, and there's three things that, 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 that are sharp, sharply contrasted with the ancient Near Eastern myths of that day. Number one, Genesis is about a good God. God is good. He's intrinsically good. He is, he is the fullness of what it means to be good. And God creates a good creation intentionally. Man, you read that first chapter of, of, of Genesis, it sounds like the lyrics to a song or a poem, and, and every refrain is like, and God created this, and he said, mm, that was good. And he creates this, mm, that's good. And then he gets all the way down to creating human beings. He goes, wow, that's real good. I'm going to give myself a hand. <laughs> Goodness. See, the, the ancient Near Eastern religions of that time, and even Gnosticism that developed around the time of Christianity, sees this whole created world as evil, intrinsically uh, messed up. Gnosticism actually sees that, that, that this world was created by a lesser deity. But the Jewish scriptures tell us, no, no, this, this world was created by a good God, and it's a good world. And here's the last thing that we see. And he creates human beings in his image and his likeness. Human beings have the capacity to show forth the image of God like no other creatures on planet Earth. Now, a lot of Old Testament scholars would look at Genesis and they say it, it really is kind of temple language, that the, the Garden of Eden is, is, is kind of like a temple and that the first human beings are like priests in that temple and that their job was to steward creation and offer creation's praises unto God. Part of it was priestly, part of it was kingly. You know, if you go around the world today, all over the world, in Britain they have statues of of. Roman emperors that you can still find in, in the furthest reaches of the Roman Empire. Uh, we saw this with even folks like Stalin, uh, you know, pictures of him all over buildings. Saddam Hussein, if, you know, if you remember when people were tearing down his statues. Why do these rulers put statues, images of themselves in their empire? They do this to show their subjects, I'm in charge. <laughs> you know, you're under my rule. What does God do? He puts human beings as his image. We know in the Old Testament that, that God, it's very clear that the, the Old Testament law says you'll make no graven image. God can't be represented with, with an image made by human hands. And that was one of the weird things for, for all the people that would see the Jewish people. are like, the Jewish people had this amazing temple in Jerusalem, and folks would show up, and they'd walk inside, and they're like, this is amazing. Uh, where's the idol? <laughs> Because it was crazy to these people that you would actually build a temple and not put an idol in it. But God creates human beings in his image to rule, to steward creation, to, to act as priests, 
mediating God's rule over the entire earth. That was God's original intent. But we know the sad story that follows. Um, I could take Zach's guitar, but I won't. Um, and, and the thing is, with, with this guitar over here, if you tune up all these strings perfectly, you can play any song on that guitar, and if you're proficient, it'll sound good. What's interesting, I could take that, that, that D string on that guitar and just knock it out of tune just a little bit. And it doesn't matter what piece of music you play on that guitar, it's going to be dissonant. It's going to be out of tune. It doesn't matter what kind of music you play on it. It's all going to sound off. And I think this is the same thing that happened with human beings in the beginning. When human beings rebelled against God, we came out of tune. See, in the original creation, I think one of the best words we can use to describe it was shalom. Now, we often think of shalom uh, translated in English as peace, but the, the Hebrew concept of shalom actually meant wholeness, everything rightly related, not just an absence of conflict, but everything in harmony. And the original creation was man in harmony with God, man in harmony with other humans, and humans in harmony with creation. But when humans uh, came out of tune with God's purposes, it affected the whole created order. So when you go through the Old Testament, particularly the book of Isaiah, you find these prophecies that talk about one day the, the, the hills are going to break forth into praise. The trees are going to clap their hands. I, I think this is just imagery. I think it inspired Lord of the Rings at some level. Uh, but we, will, we see all these prophecies that creation is going to be liberated one day. One day, lions are going to lay down with lambs. One day, we're going to beat our plowshares into, no, our, our swords into plowshares. And, <laughs> or as Paul says in, in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 8, he says that creation is groaning in travail. Groaning and waiting for liberation. It's like a pregnant woman. Can I get an amen, Rachel? <laughs> not, <laughs> not not okay yeah we got a lot of rachels in this church sorry <laughs> i i have never been pregnant but i hear <laughs> i've heard this from many a pregnant women that the pain of of pregnancy the uncomfortableness the 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 groaning the travail and, and then it, it just keeps getting worse and worse until you know the moment of delivery but the moment when that baby's born, as soon as the mother holds that baby in their hand, it's all over. It's worth it. And Paul uses this imagery that creation is like a pregnant woman groaning under the curse of sin, waiting for the revelation of God's plan, his redemption, because creation itself will be set free, be liberated. That's the, that's the stuff of the Bible. That's the actual narrative. Not that God's going to destroy this whole thing, but he's going to set it all free. It's going to be brought back into harmony. Yeah, that's good news. <laughs> and so what we see that begins in Genesis 1 and 2 is fulfilled ultimately in Genesis 21 through 22. What started in a garden ends up as a city, city the new Jerusalem. And God, once again, dwells with human beings in a renewed creation. Harmony, once again, replaces 
dissonance. And so what we're going to look at today is, is uh, Revelation chapter 21 and 22. And the last few chapters of Revelation, uh, really from chapter, I don't know, 7 to, to 20, it's all about judgment. And uh, as, as, the, as the judgment progresses, we see the judgment is against the Roman Empire. It's against Rome because Rome has been persecuting the church but we find that the power behind Rome is Satan. And so Satan is, uh, the, the, the power of Rome is, is, is uh, empowered by darkness behind it. But then we find these analogies for Rome even continued. Rome is compared to, uh, the, the, actually the city of Rome is, is begin to be referred to as the, the whore of Babylon. And so Rome, actually the city of Rome, you may not know this, was named after a goddess, Roma. And so in one sense, Rome is, is, is named after this divine goddess. But from heaven's perspective, Rome doesn't look like a goddess at all. There's nothing divine about Rome. It looks like a dressed-up prostitute who's trying to seduce the people of the earth and, and deceive them. And so we, we see this tale of two cities. Um, I was going to put all these references on there, but if you want them, I can email them to you. Uh, they wouldn't fit on our, our outline today. But I want to contrast these because we see, we see the counterfeits exposed throughout Revelation. I believe this is part of God's judgment. And when I, when I, again, when I talk about God's judgment, God is taking his hands off and letting evil reveal itself for what it truly is. Because all the nations of the world, all the peoples of the world, have bought into the lie that Rome is the ultimate power. They've worshipped the Caesar. They've looked to, to, to Rome for their security, their prosperity, all of that. And God, taking his hands off, lets the empire implode and lets it get revealed for what it really is. It's not powerful. It looks powerful. But it's not. The ultimate power is Jesus on the cross. And so we see this contrast. Rome is a parody uh, of the bride of Christ. The bride of Christ is the new Jerusalem. And so we see this, it, we, we wait till the last two chapters of this book to see the, the bride of Christ. Um, but here's a few contrasts between the bride and the harlot. The new Jerusalem... Is, is, is pictured for us in Revelation 21, 2, 9 as the chaste bride, the wife of the Lamb, contrasted with the harlot Babylon, symbolizing Rome, with whom the kings of the earth fornicate. The splendor of the new Jerusalem is the glory of God versus Babylon's splendor, which is from exploiting the empire. Babylon may look all rich and powerful, but it's only from exploiting people, exploitative practices. The nations walk by the light of the new Jerusalem, which is God's glory, versus Babylon's corruption and deception of the nations. So the new Jerusalem actually leads people into truth, while the, the, the whore of Babylon actually leads people into deception and darkness. The kings of the earth bring their glory to the new Jerusalem through submission and worship of God, Versus Babylon, who rules over the kingdoms of the earth. So Babylon, Rome, Babylon, they, they force people to worship. You know, that's part of the thing. Uh, 
that we talked about, the worshiping of the beast. Um, if you don't worship the beast, you get killed. And so that's, that's how Babylon works. But, but in the kingdom of God, it's, it's power under instead of power over. The kings of the earth willingly bring their honor to her. Uncleanliness, abominations, and falsehood are excluded from the New Jerusalem versus Babylon's abominations, impurities, and deceptions. The water of life and the tree of life are there for the healing of the nations in the New Jerusalem versus Babylon's wine, which makes the nations drunk. The New Jerusalem is characterized by life and healing. Babylon, Rome, by the blood of slaughter. So God's people are called to enter into the new Jerusalem, and they're called to come out of Babylon. And I think one of the best ways we can understand this, if you read the book of Daniel in the Old Testament, uh, Daniel was one of the uh, best and the brightest that, that the Jewish people had. And when the Babylonian exile happened and Babylon invades Israel, they take the best and the brightest to work in the Babylonian government. Imagine how that would be. Your country's just been conquered by a hated empire, and then you're asked to go serve in the government because you're so good at what you do. And so, ba- so Daniel is serving in the government of Babylon, but he doesn't serve as a citizen of Babylon. He serves as a citizen of another place, of God's kingdom. And so this gets, ba- this gets him in trouble. He, he gets in trouble for praying, uh, gets in trouble for doing all kinds of things, but he trusts his life to God, and God delivers him from death. Um, so, so in the same way, we're called to live in Babylon, but to come out of Babylon and live as citizens of the New Jerusalem um, by trusting our lives to God. Cool? All right. I know we got a lot to cover today. So Revelation 21, I'm going to read uh, a passage from it. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. Uh, the sea all throughout the Old Testament kind of represents chaos, and so that's kind of an analogy of chaos has been overcome. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Isn't that a beautiful picture? God himself is going to wipe tears from people's eyes personally. Think about that. All the stuff that this church in Revelation has gone through, the martyrdoms, the persecution, and, and we see this day ultimately where the citizens of the New Jerusalem, God comes to them and he personally wipes the tears away from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But the cowardly, 
the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magical arts, the idolaters and liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. And picking up in verse 22, it says, And I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kingdom, kings of the earth will bring their splendor to it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. The New New Jerusalem, this city of God, this bride of Christ, is the epicenter of a new creation. It's represented as a place, as a people, and a presence. Probably one of the most premier uh, Bible scholars on the, on the book of Revelation, uh, Richard Bauckham, says this. New Jerusalem is more than paradise regained. As a city, it fulfills humanity's desire to build out of nature a human place of human culture and community. True, it is given by God and so comes down from heaven, but this does not mean humanity makes no contribution to it. It consummates human history and culture insofar as these things have been dedicated to God while excluding the distortions of history and culture into opposition to God that Babylon represents. What started as a garden ends up in a city. And a city is this beautiful picture of of how human beings take the natural resources that God's given us and we make things, right? We got people in here that make houses and build and draw houses and make instruments. That's a God-given thing that God's put in you. I think we, this idea of us just sitting around playing harps on clouds for eternity, I mean, if I'm going to be honest, that sounds a little boring. And I'm a musician. I could get into playing a harp. You know, you realize in the, in the, in the renewed creation, you get, to, you get to still work. Get to. <laughs> you get to still create. There is a sense that, that the things that, that are of God right now will last into this new creation. That this new Jerusalem will, will be a combination of, of everything God's given and what we've done with it. Through God's creativity. That's pretty exciting. I, I, can get a, I can get excited about that. Yes, we're, we're going to be worshiping too. But the New Jerusalem is a place. New Jerusalem is a people. We see the New Jerusalem um, as the kingdom and priest of God. The followers of Christ will worship as priest and share God's reign as kings. The nations will walk by the city's light. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Now, this is where Revelation gets a little, a little strange. Yeah, it, it, okay, it's just been strange since the beginning. I'm sorry. 
Richard Bauckham notes this. He says, the reference to the kings of the earth is the last occurrence of the phrase which has been used throughout Revelation to refer to the rulers who associate themselves with Babylon and the beast in opposition to God's kingdom. These references to the relationship of nations and kings to the New Jerusalem are based on Isaiah's vision of the New Jerusalem ruling the world. This is, this is where it gets a little weird because we've just, in, in the previous chapters, we've just seen the kings of the world and everybody who followed the beast thrown in the lake of fire with the beast. And now we see these kings that rebelled against God coming and bringing their worship to the city, coming to the city. Um, I don't know how all that works. And then nobody does, really. I mean, I've read all kinds of people, and they're trying to, I don't know. Uh, but there's a sense, and here's what I want to say. There's this phrase, I, I believe it's in First Peter, mercy triumphs over judgment. There's a sense that even the judgment of God, and, and I've been saying this all along, God's judgment is not punitive. God doesn't punish people. His judgments are to free people. His judgments are to bring healing, to, to liberate. Don't shout me down now. And finally, we see the new Jerusalem is presence. It's the presence of God. It's the dwelling place of God, even as Eden was in the beginning. Uh, new Jerusalem is the, is the place, the, the one place on planet Earth where God's presence is, is manifested in the same way. It, you know, the, the whole world will be recreated, but new Jerusalem, and by the way, I didn't get into all the dimensions of the city. It's going to be a square city that's about 1,500 miles squared. It's going to be big, you know, 1,500 miles high, 1,500 miles deep and wide. Um, I don't think that's necessarily literal, but who knows? Um, it's going to look like a big box. Um, <laughs> Revelation 22. I'm going to try to wrap this up. Revelation 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city, on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And these leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. See, God, after all these horrible things that have taken up a big chunk of the book of Revelation, we see that God's ultimate purpose is healing the nations. His ultimate purpose is to, to reconcile. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. They see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. Look. Verse 12, look, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to each person according to what they have done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes. Uh, we, we see this, this image all the time. Those who have washed their robes in the, in the blood of the Lamb, that they may have the right to the tree of life. The tree of life goes all the way back to, to Genesis uh, it was a tree in the garden, one of the two trees. Human beings ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They were kicked out of the garden before they could get to the tree of life. But here we see the tree of life uh, on both sides of this river of life. 
Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates of the city. Outside are the dogs, those who practice magical arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes to take the free gift of the water of life. So we see that, that one, of the, one of the things that happens with this new Jerusalem is it's a part of God's reconciling, redeeming uh, the, the rest of the creative order, particularly those who've sinned against them. Now, this is the weird thing, and, and honestly, I've read plenty of, of Bible scholars and theologians who are like, they don't know what to make of this, so I'll just throw a few things out there. Um, it seems weird that we've had this big judgment all these people have been thrown into the lake of fire. And then yet, when the new Jerusalem comes, there are these people that are hanging out outside the city. Where did they come from? No, nobody got an answer? I don't know. Uh, no, really. <laughs> um, <laughs> some have speculated that, that perhaps the, the reality of being outside the city is, is actually uh, another way of saying the lake of fire. That they, these are both referring to the same things. Actually, I went to Jerusalem a few years ago. And right outside of Jerusalem, you can stand up on the walls of the city. You look out, and there's this valley, and it's a valley called Gehenna. And the word Gehenna is, is translated hell in your Bible. And it's a word that's used by Jesus probably uh, to, that's translated hell. Uh, he uses the term frequently. He actually tells Jerusalem, if you don't repent, you're going to turn into Gehenna. I don't think that, that, that Jesus was going to say that you're going to burn in a fire for the rest of your life. I was thinking he was just saying, like, that dump that you smell on days outside the city when the wind blows the right way, um, if, you, if you don't f repent and follow God, you're going to end up destroyed like that. And that's exactly what happened to Jerusalem in 70 AD. Uh, perhaps what's going on here is that, that Gehenna, basically a little history of it, it was a cursed place. The Jewish people had actually offered sacrifices to the god Molech by offering their kids in the fire sacrificing their, their children to this god, Molech, by burning them in the fire in that valley. And so that valley outside of Jerusalem was considered cursed. It became a dump over time. They would throw the dead bodies uh, of people who didn't get a, you know, who were criminals. They would throw them over the walls into Gehenna. There were worms and flies and fire. And so that's the word that came to, to, to mean hell in English. But what we see, and, and this, is, this is where it gets weird, what we see is that when the new Jerusalem has come, that this city, its gates are never shut. It's never shut. And we see that the spirit and the bride extend the invitation, come to the water. Come drink of the water of life. Come be healed. Come be healed. So I don't, I don't know what this... I, I don't know. I don't know what all this means. I, and a lot of people try to make sense of it. Perhaps there's more hope for people than we can realize. Um, I'd like to think that God's mercy is a lot bigger than my mercy or the way that we've characterized it. But I think ultimately what, what Revelation's getting at is that, that, that ultimately God wants to heal this place. He wants to restore it. 
He wants human beings to live in the way that he intended from the beginning. And we see that, that the promise of Abraham, if you follow me, Abraham, I'm going to make you a nation, and, and you're, and you're going to bless all the nations of the world. All the nations of the world will be blessed in you. We see this wonderful picture in, in Revelation several times that the kingdoms of the world become the kingdom of God, and these kings come and worship God. Now, here's the deal. You only get in the city through Jesus, okay? It's not like, hey, you know, just any way gets you in the city. No. It's clear. You only get in the city by having your robe washed in the blood of the Lamb. That's the only way in. But I think there's a hopeful expectation of God's coming through the conversion of the nations. And really, I think that's one of the main points of Revelation, that all this stuff that's been happening through the church, through all these conflicts, the way the church has suffered and laid their life down and been martyred and trusted their life to God and not fought back against the empire, uh, that ultimately that witness changes things. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The blood of the martyrs is the downfall of the empire. I believe not only that Revelation says that, but that history bears that out. So Revelation is about following the way of Christ into victory. It's about a renewal of the whole cosmos, a hope for the whole creation, the climax of creation, the tree of life, the water of life, but in a city instead of a garden. I'll leave you with this one little uh, bit by... N.T. Wright, he said, the mystery unfolds a step further. For most of Revelation, the nations and their kings have been hostile. They have shared in the idolatry and the economic violence of Babylon. They have oppressed and opposed God, his purposes and people. But the earlier hints of God's wider redeeming purpose now come into full play. The witness of the martyr church in chapter 11 resulted in the nations which had been raging against God, coming instead to give him glory. Now here they come in procession in the long fulfillment of scriptural prophecies such as Psalm 72, 10 through 11, that God's glory would fill the whole earth. And above all, Isaiah 60, the chapter which anticipates several elements in John's village. Here they come bringing their glory into the city through the wide open gates, the city itself is not a tableau, a static picture with people simply gazing at the glorious golden streets or indeed God himself and the Lamb. It's a bustling community filled with activity as the nations come to worship and do homage. Isn't that beautiful? And, 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 and that's where, again, I think our understanding of where this thing is going has everything to do with the way we live right now. Because if you just believe, hey, man, God's going to wipe everybody, <laughs> just destroy everybody, destroy the earth, uh, you're just going to be hanging on <laughs> to go. <laughs> and you're going to be treating this earth like a dump. But if you realize that God's ultimate plan is redemption and he wants to, that he created a good thing, then you're going to live in that way that values what he values. So today I want to close. I want to get the worship team back up here. We're going to close with an old vineyard song that is inspired by Revelation 22. 
This is a song called All Who Are Thirsty. And I just want to invite you today, if you're struggling with sickness in here today, uh, whether, whether it's something physical, whether it's something emotional, uh, disconnect, depression, anxiety, and you want some prayer, come to the waters today. And I just want to invite you up, uh, even as the band sings this song, um, to come up. And we want to pray for you. Hear the Spirit's invitation. Come. Be refreshed. Come. Be healed. Come find the life that he offers for you. Why don't you all stand up?